Hey everyone, I'm Jana Panaritis. You're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, and today's show marks our 100th episode. My goal with this show has always been to talk about caregiving and aging in a different way, to get beyond the statistics and hear from the folks actually doing the work. It's been such a privilege to speak with so many thought-provoking guests, to have them say, here's what it's like, here's what's happening, here's my story. On the AgeWise podcast, we explore strategies for aging well and wisely, which, when you get right down to it, means aging with dignity. Now, at this moment in America's history, many of us are asking, who are we as a country? Are we truly a caring nation? From the stories I've heard, the answer is yes, literally and figuratively. We are a caring nation. But we can do so much better at supporting each other with policies and programs that reflect the reality of our lives. So let's keep sharing our stories of what it means to be a caregiver. Let's educate our policymakers by telling it like it is, by talking candidly about the challenges we face and the solutions we have to offer. Let's keep talking, caregivers. Let's comfort each other and remind each other that we're not alone. Thank you so much for listening. Here's today's show. Deirdre Fischel has a 20-year history of directing both documentaries and dramas that have premiered in competition at Sundance and South by Southwest and been broadcast in 30 countries worldwide. She co-wrote a book based on her award-winning documentary called Still Doing It, The Intimate Lives of Women Over 65. When she's not making films, Deirdre's an associate professor and director of the BFA in Film and Video at the City College of New York. She joins us today from New York to talk about her new documentary called Care, which delves deep into the world of home elder care as seen through the eyes of both paid caregivers and their clients. Deirdre Fischel, I am so happy to have you on the show. Welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Thank you. So filmmaking is really tough. Why did you choose this subject? I think very early on in my life, even when I was in my 30s, I was really aware of how panicked everyone was about was about aging. Um, and it's, you know, my, my sister was very anxious about it. And that sort of, and, and then yet we had this model of my mother. So that kind of led me into this whole other film, which was my last film, which was about very different than care, about living vibrantly till the end. Hmm. Um, and so I became totally immersed in this idea that we're aging very differently. We're living a lot longer and it's, it's really wonderful and something to celebrate. But as my mother began to age past her 70s into her mid and late 80s, I sort of had to kind of wake up and go, you know, she is still totally vibrant, but she's frail. Mm-hmm. And um, that was something that my sister and I had to grapple with. And as we kind of began to look at sort of what options she would have, she was absolutely adamant, adamant, adamant that she wanted to be at home. Mm -hmm. Um, No matter what, she wanted to be in her home, um, that that was the thing that gave her dignity. And that sort of sent me in this direction of looking at paid care, because we're both working mothers and we wouldn't have been able to do it full time, and just kind of being shocked when I went into that world, Mm -hmm. first how difficult it was to navigate, but then also... um, when I realized how poorly people were paid, it just seemed so strange because here was something that was so dear to us to keep our mother at home. So why would this care be paid with poverty wages? Yeah. And that sent me into about a four-year exploration of this topic. 
Is your mom still living? My mother is still living and, and, and doing very well. We, we finally convinced her to get a little bit of help, uh-huh. and people are resistant. I mean, that's yeah. part of the yeah. issue here is it's hard for all of us to kind of like grapple with losing independence. But the little bit of help that she's gotten now, which is, you know, just a few hours, she's still doing pretty well, has actually made her more relaxed, more yeah. comfortable, mm-hmm. able actually to live more vibrantly because she doesn't feel stressed. So this woman is able to come and do kind of some of her daily needs, get groceries. And I think think that's the hard thing is that people are so scared to talk about care because it just, it's so emblematic of the fact that we do ultimately decline. But the beauty of care is that having the care you need as you're older allows you to live as fully you know, because if you if you're if you're really struggling just to get through the day or or you know do your bills or whatever it is, having that little bit of help allows you to live a more dignified, happier life. Mm-hmm. It sounds so. like your mom has been very independent. Is she living in an apartment, and where is she living? Yeah, she lives in an apartment, which okay. makes it a little yeah. bit easier because mm-hmm. there you know are people around in a doorman. Right. But it's actually interesting that. When we were making the film, one of the things that we were we really wanted to find was somebody just on the cusp of care, like someone uh-huh. who was sort of thinking about getting care and then just got it. And we actually spent about a year trying to find just that story, like right, someone, you know, we're thinking about it and then they move towards it, you know. And it was almost impossible because what we heard over and over again from people in the elder care world was that people think about it and think about it and think about it and think about it and often wait until they're in a crisis and then things start moving. Uh, We're not really trained to think like, oh, I could get a little bit of care and that would be helpful and then maybe I'll need more at some later point. So a lot of people don't have that kind of radical illness. Some people do. They'll have a stroke or they'll get, um, you know, their dementia will get to a certain point. But a lot of people, they just begin like my mother to need more and more help. Um, and it's often very hard for families in that juncture because people like my mother, they don't want it. Yeah. We've been told, because, because partly we've been told that we're such a, a society of independence mm-hmm. that if you lose independence, it's somehow shameful. And I think people really hold out. And I think that's a real problem in our society. Oh, yeah. Because care and interdependence is part of the human condition. So let's talk about the folks that you profiled in the film. You have a total of four care recipients and four paid caregivers, each with their own specific set of circumstances, yet all facing many of the same struggles. You said you took some time to find the participants. What was the process like, and how willing were they or not to talk about their subject, yeah. about about the material? We thought... When you know, when I started, for some, I had this idea that it would be harder to find workers, mm-hmm. um, particularly people that were undocumented. And there are a lot of undocumented workers because poorly paid people don't want to do it. So a lot of undocumented people are filling in this incredible need that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but the workers were actually very, very willing to do it because I think the ones who love their job they really know that what they get it, that what they do is give this really vital care, and they're frustrated that their work is so undervalued. So the workers were actually easier to find. Um, The harder one was to find the Lori story, because I don't live in a rural area, and Mm -hmm. I had to find an organizer who could kind of lead me to that particular rural story. But what I found was much harder um, sometimes was to find... We went through many cases 
where the recipients of care were not that very comfortable being filmed and until we could find people who were willing to open their stories to us. And again, I think it's the same thing. Like Peter, um, who's featured in the film, who is, is to this day such a brilliant, charming man, even as he faces Parkinson's, um, he was a superstar. He was a Rhodes Scholar, uh, CBS executive, traveled around the world. And I think it was very hard for him. He did not agree immediately. I, I sort of hmm. hung out for a long time before one day he said, okay, you can follow me with the camera. <laughs> and he said, I haven't held a camera since the Vietnam War wow. when he was a correspondent. Gosh. But I think it was very hard for him because it, he, he does wrestle a lot with this feeling of that somehow he's done something wrong, not just grappling with uh, what the losses are, yeah. but some this this shaming thing that we have about um, losing our independence, which I think is is an added burden for recipients. Yeah, care. it's a, it's particularly hard on men too. Um, mm-hmm, I agree. Um, you do a great job of humanizing the impact of caregiving for a really diverse group, especially the financial impact of care, not just for the paid caregivers, but for the recipients. One of the caregiver, Lori, who you mentioned earlier, who's caring for Larry, who has COPD, she takes home just $302 a week. She can't pay her rent while you have these middle, the middle class couple, Tony and Peter, who are going broke paying for his 24-7 care. You interview Ai-jen Poo, who is, of course, very well known in this space. Can you talk a little bit about the financial impact? Well, I think I actually came into the story, although my mother wasn't a recipient of care, I was just so so shocked by the, the, the poverty wages. And I very much thought at one point that I would make a film that was really just focused on care workers and the work itself. But I think as I got in, I talked to Ai-jen Poo and to some folks at the Ford Foundation and really moved into the space, what I started to realize is you can't just talk about the care workers because this is a 360 financial systemic issues. Mm -hmm. Because even if you cannot raise the wages for workers because families are already going bankrupt, this is, there are most other countries pay for these kinds of services. And the real craziness is if you, you know, completely become super ill and, you know, have a heart attack or get into a coma or become so, you know, you can go to a hospital and your insurance will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars. Our system will do that. But what our system will not do is pay for kind of incremental services that could protect people. And I really think it's short-sighted, but the reason that I did this kind of 360 look at it is the system just doesn't work from either side. You have, you cannot expect people to make $13 an hour doing back-breaking work. You're not going to attract the kind of people we desperately need. You know, maybe some people are angels, but most people want to feed their family, even if they love their work. We need to be attracting people who are you know, very capable, caring people who can go in and see that this is a job with some kind of advancement. So that's one half of the equation, but you're not going to get that. If families are going broke, upper middle class families are right now qualifying for Medicaid. It's incredible. Who's paying for it? Right. We're paying for it. (laughs) It is being paid for all over the place by the system, but in a real kind of band-aid way that is not really looking 
at, 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 at doing this in the most efficient, humane way possible. And it's a hard time to be making a film that's aspirational for systemic change. I think Ai-jin Poo is visionary, and she's really saying, we're ahead of a crisis right now. Mm-hmm. Now is the moment to look at how to change our system. It's not easy with the Trump administration. Certainly things are, we're losing ground. And of course, it has been a crisis for a while. Um, the median, as Ajahn Poo points out, the median income for a home care worker, a personal care aide, is $13,000 a year. I mean, I think people would be surprised to know that. Um, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I walked around in a state of rage. I just couldn't believe it. And there's a woman in the film who's a supervisor at a, a, a Denise, kind of high road yeah. uh, co op home care agency. And she says, What kind of a society? would say that the people that take care of our parents, our elders, would make poverty wages. And I think it is a testament to the ageism in this society that we don't value the end of life. We don't want to look at it. It's all about consumerism and action. But you know what? It is a life cycle. And to not take care of people as they age, I I basically think is criminal. I really do. Because, unfortunately, at 13000 a lot of people just can't do it. And we tried to show the best of care, and there is amazing care. Mm-hmm. But you're not always going to get great care when you're paying people, really, a, a wage that says you're not worth very much. I was really impressed by how you, first of all, captured a broad uh, range of folks who were care recipients. And you do a really great job of giving everyone equal weight. So uh, it's interesting for me to hear you say that you started out thinking it would just be about the workers, which could easily fill a a whole film. But I like the fact that you connected everything. Um, Where do people find support groups like Elder Dialogues? Can you talk a little bit about that and how you found them? That group? Yeah, well, what, as I was in this space working, um, I was able to kind of connect with a group called Jews for Racial Economic Justice, and they were working with a synagogue who were, their congregation was growing older, and they really were starting to think about these issues. Hmm. And so they, you know, they thought that a, a, a good place was to start, to bring workers together, to bring uh, care recipients or people who would need care uh, to begin to talk about their shared struggles, right? That it this, that you couldn't really fix this equation unless you looked at the 360 of all sides. I think there was more hope at one point that these elder care dialogues would pilot out nationally. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think we are in a very particular moment where people, unfortunately, I think one of the things that happens now is that people are just so protective of any service that exists or yeah. trying to fight for it. And not maybe as expanding, thinking about the future. Uh, you know, we can only hope that that that, that we're all going to kind of like prepare for the long term fight and maintain this vision. Because without being catastrophic, as you said before, we all know that this has been a crisis for a long time, and it's not going to go away. It's going to only get worse. And now is kind of a moment to be proactive. You know, we are ahead of it. The baby boomers are still not an advanced age. They're beginning to age, but they're not an advanced age. But as those boomers get into advanced age, we will just not have the workforce to do the work that needs to be done to take care of people if they want to live at home. And, you know, institutional care has not only do most people not want it, but it's not necessarily that much cheaper. So I think, you know, certainly what I, my hope is that 
we can begin as a country to have more dialogues about what do we want and what's possible. All of the care recipients that you profiled either did not want to go to a nursing home or were there and really suffered as a result of it. I mean, I'm not surprised that they wanted to age in their homes. But it's really interesting that folks said, you know, he was there for two months and it just didn't work. And and he actually ended up being worse. I think people are reluctant to admit that. Well, I think people are scared about the economics. And I think Ai-jin Poo has, has really talked a lot about, you know, the economics are often home care can actually be a, a relatively affordable kind of care. But there are a lot of institutions out there and that's what Medicaid is sort of in the habit of paying for. I mean, could you have better care in institutions? Maybe you could. I mean, th- there's a sort of systemic issue of kind of, not really thinking about what's going to happen to people as they decline and really thinking about what would be the best situation. Now, some people, I know people who have said to me, you know, it worked out best for my family to have my mother go into a nursing home and have my father. So, you know, I hope the film doesn't stand as a, as a, a rebuke or a, a, a criticism of, you know, say like that that's never the better choice. But I think if most of us were to have an honest discussion about whether we would want to have our final days in an institution, or we would rather be home, particularly if it's a home like D, that you lived in all your life, you know, you're a single businesswoman, but you have a community in your apartment building, and you love your home, and as artifacts from your travels, or you're Larry, and you live in a home, and there's animals and kittens, and your grandson runs in and out. I mean, I think most people would agree. And you know, do we really want to admit that we're a society that's going to institutionalize people as we age? It's <laughs> right. kind of like a sci-fi movie. Right. right. Scary. Right. Well, there's no one-size-fits-all. I don't think the film comes across that way at all. Good. Uh, I'm yeah. glad. Yeah. I'm glad. Because, no. you know, each situation is particular. But I know my mother would like to age at home. And I know for me, I mean, when I think about it, I just, I, I'm sure I'll be that same way. You know, I love my home. My home is a lot of who I am. And to lose, you lose so much as you get older. Like, you know, your mother lost your father. You know, people lose, they lose their friends. They yeah. lose their spouses. Their children often move to the other side of the country. There's so much loss. And they say that moving people in an advanced age, when D, there was a question. Right, at the end. no longer pay for her home at the end. That was so moving. Her sister gave her last money to her. Wow, what a sister. they were literally afraid that leaving her home might be the end of her life. That was just incredible. I, I, I was absolutely floored by that. You know, I have to be honest. There were moments when I was actually really teary during this film because... It was so beautifully filmed. Uh, There were some lovely transition shots that were just really arresting in their spareness and cold New York. And I live in Florida, so it's it's pretty sunny. But I wow, (laughs) it it was very um, not not overly so stark in 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 a way with those shots, but really beautiful, poignant. Thank you. How long did it take you to complete the project? It took about. Uh, I guess we started in the spring of 2012, oh. and it premiered at Sheffield Doc Fest, which is a festival, a documentary festival in England, in 2016. So I guess basically four years from meeting our, you know, meeting our characters. Our first, uh, the first people we started filming were Vilma and Dee, until mm-hmm. it was completed and out. So mm-hmm. it's a process. It's a journey. It's definitely an undertaking. Uh-huh. Um, what was good about it for you, and what was hard? 
I think the part that was good about it was that I really, you know, I found, because I actually did a lot of the filming, I found care so heartbreakingly beautiful. I just found that that hands-on care, that when it was done in a way that sort of tried to give someone as much dignity as I could have, you know, you're talking about very intimate things, taking yeah. them to the shower and helping them with bathroom stuff and walking when they're unstable. And, but when it was done in a way that respected the person and yet was done with such tenderness, it just, it continued to fill me with sort of like a love of humanity mm-hmm. that people could be there for each other in such a profound way. And so I was often filled with a lot of happiness, actually, despite the fact that people were, you know, losing, you know, independence, or in the case of Larry and um, of Peter, that they were facing illnesses. But there was something so human and wonderful, and I love these workers and what they meant to the families. I think the hardest part is always when you make a film is raising money, continuing to have to try to weave the stories, continuing to try to figure out what needed to be in there and what didn't. It's such a complicated landscape. And film is ultimately not about information. So we would do screenings where some people would be like, there's not enough information. We want more interviews. We want more facts. We want more cards. We just want to know more. And Hmm. then we had up screenings. Other people were like, no, you know, just leave it very spare and let's just have the experience. But, you know, trying to... You know, we wanted to move people, my producer and I, who really were in it together. We wanted for people to enter into a a, a reality that's often hidden behind closed doors and really have a visceral experience. But we also wanted people to have enough understanding and be outraged enough at the system that they might take action. And sort of that balance is always tricky with the film. Did you do? You don't want it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, no. did you did you recut it based on? Any oh, of we recut it a million times. Right. So that's really interesting because I think it's really it's it's its own thing. It's not trying to be too many things. So that's you, great. Yeah, that's you, great you had. Go ahead. You make a film. It's it's always like it's it's almost like a you're chiseling a, a, a sculpture out of a piece of stone, you know, and you're trying actually to come to some place where it feels organic, that it is what it is, you know, and that it doesn't have lots of extra pieces, that it has a clear kind of through line. So it's, it's wonder, you know, that was the aim and that was the goal, but that took a lot of editing. It was, there were a lot of pieces to the, the film and, wow. it, and we were editing on and off for two years. I, I'm really glad that you kept it focused on the characters. Um, and I lived in New York City for 16 years, so I uh, was familiar with at least the setting and the vibe that was coming from the characters who were a little bit more urban and feel the, that the other characters. And so when you went out into that rural location, I thought, wow, this is really great. She's going out into the country. Um, mm-hmm. I completely felt emotionally drawn to the story of Lori and her caring for Larry. She winds up taking a trucking job. Tell us about that. I mean, I think she is the tragedy that is going to happen, which is that you take a woman who, and I had a similar feeling about just being out in this tiny, tiny town in a kind of lifestyle that I had really not familiar with. I live in New York City, so I also live in a very urban place. But she is, she 
was so dedicated in this kind of salty way. You know, she joked and she cajoled and she's very physical and able to take care of a man who was, you know, she needed to lift. And Uh she just had such a profound love of this work and was so good at it. It was just, I, I also was really riveted. And to see someone like that come to the realization that they really can't do this work, that yeah. it's not fair to their family because they're paid so little, they're, the agency doesn't protect them um, between jobs. It just, and that is the dilemma. She is a metaphor for what is happening, that people who are good at the job, who have other options, are going to leave the profession just at a moment when we actually should be doing the exact opposite. We yeah. need to be attracting people to the profession. And um, that's what they call, what do they call it? They call it the care gap, mm. that we will have a care gap. There will be far more people who need care. And then talk about it, you know, even worse with the Trump administration making, you know, so many workers are undocumented. Yeah. And there was a moment, there was a light during the Obama time when I think I Jin Poo thought that there might be an opening for undocumented folks who were doing this kind of work to really elevate and say, yes, we need you, and to give them citizenship. And we've so gone the other way because we need people. Anyone who is here in our country who can do this work is someone that we should be valuing and praising and applauding that they're here to do this work for us. Because yeah. it's tough. I mean, it's very... I think that was the other thing that just constantly floored me was it's hard physically, it's hard emotionally. You have to be able to take a lot of pain in. People get mad. People who are feeling dependent or losing independence or they're ill and, and you know, they don't feel well, they can often be quite grumpy. Oh, yeah. And you sort of have to be able to rock with it, not take it personally, joke, cajole. It's just... I could never do it. I literally was in awe of these women. And I was, as you you say, I was very in awe, particularly of Lori. And it is, to me, the ultimate tragedy of the film. She has five kids. And five grandchildren. Incredible. She left the profession and just said, I can't do it. Yes, I I think I wrote this down. She said, caring for Larry, her caree, caring for Larry makes me feel like I've done something right. And she pushing him, she, you know, she says, you're not going to get better if you don't fight. I mean, I love her tough yeah. love She's strategy. Tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she loved him. I mean, she deeply, deeply loved him. And I think we don't value any work that's done in the home. You know, we don't value yeah. housework. Right. We don't value childcare. We didn't, we never really took account for women, you know, who were quote unquote housewives, all the work they did. It was like, oh, it just happened to get done. That's a lot of work. Oh, and yeah. we need to value all of that work and just say, like, if all of the care workers and all the people who work in homes suddenly said, okay, guys, we're out, you know, we're going to take a strike tomorrow, the whole country would shut down. Yeah. That's the work that makes everything else possible. Yeah. That's the work, the care work, that if, whether it's an elder or a babysitter, that lets you go out and do your job. And to not acknowledge that. I think it really just doesn't look at the economy in any kind of real way. It it has the economy ride on the backs yeah. of other people. And I think that's too bad for a first world country. I, I really think that's a shame. You're not going to get an argument from me. There was a time when I was caring for my mom after my father died. I cared for my mom for three years. I moved back into my childhood home 
to care for her. And wow. my mom said to me at one point, I'm so glad that your father left me in good shape financially. So I said, Mom, you do know that dad would not have been as successful as he was if you were not here to take care of us and run the house so that he could go out and be successful, right? But because of her generation and because of the way she was raised, for whatever reason, she really didn't see it that way. And my right. father was a very successful lawyer, and they had a great life together, and he did leave her comfortable. Not wealthy, but just comfortable. And mm -hmm. it really infuriated me when I heard her say that, but I had to be really calm and say, Mom, he couldn't have done it without you. And that's the reality, which you were just speaking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of work to hold a household together. And it's important work. And I just think that's a, kind of the next phase of feminism is also going to say, this work has to be done by somebody. And that work needs to be valued. It's important work. Caring for people should be the most human, important work we have. More important than just going out and making a lot of money, yeah. which is you know, what some people are motivated to do. But I guess that's the thing about care that I really hope people take away when they see the film is the incredible tenderness of what it means to be there for someone. It was so interesting to me, too, that despite the circumstances, everyone who you portrayed was just clinging to any quality of life. Mm -hmm. Peter could barely move with Parkinson's. Larry was struggling to breathe, couldn't move. Did quality of life issues come up? This was fascinating to me. I think it was all about quality of life. But just I think clinging that, to that, yeah. you know, to the very end. Yeah, I think that, you know, at any given moment, as you get older or as you get ill, I always love when Tony says in the film that, you know, we are all abled until we're not. If you live right. long enough, most of us, or actually all of us, will have some kind of a disability or some kind of decline. And I guess the question is, at that point, are you like a different person? Or are we still thinking like, oh, yeah, that's me, or that's my mom? And how can we accommodate that? How can we ride with that to give that person any kind of quality of life, any kind of human connection, any sense of dignity to the fullest extent possible? Mm -hmm. And at one point, Vilma says, and she believes this so strongly, she, you know, one of the care workers, that that is a right that's a very radical statement in yeah. our society, that it is the right of every person to have that dignity and mm -hmm. have that care. Um, I believe that, but I do not think that that is yet part of the national agenda, because if it is part of the national agenda, it's that people have the right to that quality of care, whatever they can have, not luxury, just dignity, then we need to do things very differently, because that's not where we're headed. We are headed to some kind of warehousing and institution. I mean, there are like frontline pieces that take a much harder stance at this than our film, which we were trying to show the best of what's possible. When mm -hmm. you had but it was refreshing in that a way. a horror film that basically <laughs> right. says we're all going to be headed to something, a very minimal kind of care, maybe cared for largely by robots. And you know, look, if a robot can take your pulse and send it to a doctor, notify them when you have to, you know, go to the hospital. You know, those kinds of uses of technology, I think, are wonderful. Yeah, and I think sure. Ijin Poo, in particular, is really excited about that. So it can, technology can help us, too. But I just don't think a robot is going to be able to talk to you and make you feel that you have a human connection. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
Domestic Workers United. Vilma yes. got quite involved with that. Yes, she did. Domestic Workers United really had sort of a heyday at that particular time when we were making the film because there are various around the country. They had New York had the first what we call the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. And so what that is is it's on the books that people should get a certain kind of income and also have certain kind of protections. Like you shouldn't have to, you know, if you work over 40 hours, you get time and a half, those kinds of things. The issue there is that even when these things go on the books, enforcing it is a very, very big deal. Mm-hmm. But, but that was the first time in the history of this country that there was actually a statewide bill that said, you know, there has to be some kind of protections. And at the federal level, while Obama was uh, in office, he signed in the first thing that actually said that domestic workers were under the same kind of laws as other workers around the country, because during the New Deal and FDR, in order to get the southern states to sign on, they actually purposely excluded farm workers and domestic workers. The South would not buy in. So this group of domestic workers, care workers being a subset, uh, you know, elder care workers, have it, it's just sort of been built into the fabric of our system that they would be essentially glorified slaves. You referred earlier to what it means in our society for care to be thought of as a private responsibility versus a public right. And of course, this question is at the heart of the GOP health care reform right yeah. now. It's been framed in this exact same way. I mean, I think the question is, do we feel that we're all on our own? And that if I can afford, you know, good health care, I have enough money to, you know, get good care for my parents uh, in the home, that that doesn't really matter if you can't. You know, I I find that, you know, in a country that thinks of itself as sort of Christian, I find that incredibly unchristian. But above and beyond that, it's short-sighted. Because maybe the 1% or 2% can afford some of these services, but elder care is not like babysitting, where, you know, you go like, you have your kid, you work 40 hours, you say, I get 40 hours of care. Once you start to go into 24-7 care, which is what Tony and Peter have, or even 12 hours of care, when you get into the high numbers of care, basically the calculator just starts going up and you get into the hundreds of thousands. So... How much money do you have to have? And I think that's where people are not realizing that it's only the very, very, very wealthy where money will not be a consideration. So I don't know how people are going to be able to afford it. I mean, Peter and Tony were upper middle class. They were not middle class. They had a lot of money. That was a nice apartment. Beautiful apartment. (laughs) A really, really wonderful lifestyle, you know, not riding around in limousines, but Money was not an issue for that family, but when you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in five years, right, a million dollars, right? She said, "Yeah, she said on camera, we spent as much in the last twelve months on AIDS as I have earned in the last four years." Yeah, amazing, crazy. And then you have to say that you know she's only about seventy now, Mm -hmm. so you know it's like let's even say you have a million dollars in the bank. But she has to live another 20 years. Yeah. So who has millions? You know, I just think that's a really, really rarefied group. And if all of the rest of us who don't have millions of dollars in the bank but actually want to age with dignity at home, there's going to have to be some kind of systemic change. Absolutely. And then there's Pat who gave her sister $100,000 to stay in her home, and then she 
very poignantly says, but I have these expenses to look forward to myself. How old was Pat? Pat was about a year or two younger. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And Um, and she lived in California? And she lived in California. Dee was from California and had moved, you know, as a young businesswoman. She went at one point went to Columbia Business School and just really had created this life for herself in New York. And when she started to get older, her sister and her niece were really wanted her to come back to California, but she had a life. Right. Part of it was her apartment, her circle of friends. It was where she had lived her adult life. And she was, again, very, very adamant. And that's that's a big thing in, in this world where people who don't have children or have not gotten married and their family lives a little bit far away, we really need care workers. We really need people to step in. And I know for the, the relationship between Jill And Vilma, Jill being the niece in California, was profound because Jill absolutely knew that the only way that Dee could stay in her home was to have Vilma. And that was the gift. It was. And she had actually, the niece, Jill, had come out and cared for Dee when she had had chemotherapy treatment, as I understood it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And she said, I just, as much as I love her, I just, I couldn't do it. Yep. It's hard. Yeah. And I think you talk to anybody who takes care of, a parent, you know, who's in a crisis, an older parent. And it's it's hard. It's very, very, very hard work. So what I sort of feel like is if you're lucky enough, and I think this is true. I mean, I think the good news and to the positive news is that the families who have had good care workers are very grateful and do get it. Mm-hmm. And what we're hoping that the film can do is help more people who haven't had that experience yet to have the experience so that we can kind of bring this insight into for all of us. But I do think people often, in retrospect, they are even more grateful because in the moment it can be such a crisis. My producer had had that experience. His mother Hmm. had eight children, but yet as she got older, not one of them lived in the state that she lived in. And this care worker took care of his mother. And only in retrospect did he really grapple with how little she made. And I think that was one of the reasons he was so committed to the film. We have three caregivers for my mom right now, and we pay two of them privately. And we pay them $16 an hour. We wow. Also, yeah, that, be- must, that really adds up. Yeah, it's insane. Fortunately, she has yeah. the money, but it's just like you, it's a, it's a cash register. And the one who spends the most time with her works through an agency. It's $180 for a live-in, which I found in your film is really interesting that in New York, the one agency was paying $140 a day. Peter went on Medicaid, but Tony made the point of saying that using it was hard because there weren't that many aids, and the reimbursement rate is just $140 a day. Is that right? Well, what it is is that they say that when you work a 24-hour shift, that you're not really working 24 hours, that eight of those hours are night hours, so you shouldn't be paid. So they're saying that you're making 16. It's still not great, but it's better. The problem is that even if, you know, like Tony at one point wanted to go and went to a lawyer and said, I want to tell them, I want people to understand that my husband is restless and up during the night. They're not sleeping. I know they're not sleeping. Mm -hmm. You know, and plus, even if someone sleeps through the night, if you're the person responsible and something were to happen, you have to be sort of awake and sort of vigilant. Absolutely. Um, Those overnight folks do not sleep. And that to me is just, I I do not believe that somebody doesn't really know that, but it's just 
at this point what they are able to get away with. They had had a couple of really great workers um, when they were paying privately, and it was much more until they lost all their money. And then one worker agreed to continue having to suddenly stay through the night. But it was a tremendous cost to her, and it just seems like, why is this being done on the back of this woman who is so generous? What did you learn about your mom's experience that you're planning for yourself, if anything, or um, even from well, this film? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I would say is that my mother, it's just a funny thing. You know, at one point she was falling a lot, and we were like, Mom, you're falling. She would literally, you'd be walking, and the next thing you'd look down, there she was on the sidewalk. Oh. And it, it took a lot of convincing to get her to use a cane. Mm-hmm. But when she used the cane, she realized, like, oh, wow, I can walk better, I feel more stable, I feel more independent. And we had a thing where I asked, you know, we finally said, listen, we want you to get some care. It makes us nervous that you're, we see her every weekend, but that you're alone all week. So, you know, I wound up finding some people for her to, you know, kind of vet and see who she would be most compatible with. And she was like, I don't want this care. I don't want anyone. (laughs) Okay, fine. But then she wound up doing it. And now all she talks about, oh, Jane this, Jane that, (laughs) Jane, oh, she gets me these great things from the grocery store. Oh, she redid my closet. Oh, Oh, you know, she made my, you know, she got me this new toilet seat. It works a lot better. We were having a talk about this. Oh, she saw Malia Obama on the subway the other day. And it's just both as a companion, as someone to talk politics with, to do these little things that make her feel more comfortable in her home. And I think what I've learned is that by getting a little bit of help, although it's counterintuitive, getting the help you need at every stage actually makes you live more robustly because it's scary. You know, when you know you're hanging on by a thread and you feel imperiled or at risk, it's not a good place to be. Yeah. And care and levels of care that are appropriate, you know, look, if you don't need more, you just start with what you need, actually allows you to live this very different kind of life. So I, I hope that my mother's experience and also just this amazing experience I've had with all these care workers has made me more open to kind of accepting the care that I need and not fighting it so much. But whether the system will be better, you know, it's hard to say. And I do think that there are other things that can happen. I think people could live in community homes together. Maybe each person doesn't have their own care worker. Maybe a group of friends get together and live in one place, and you have one care worker when one person could mm-hmm. do it. Or, You know, I do think we're going to have to be innovative. And I do think money is not nothing, and it is a big thing to handle. I just wish we would, like Ai-jin Poo, look at someone like that who is such a leader, a MacArthur genius, who's really on the forefront, and be rolling up our sleeves with her and saying, how can we be innovative? Right. And how can we really figure out how to deinstitutionalize care and do stuff that's more community and home care, right. which is what most people really crave. I think the baby boomers are going to do this really differently. And I also think, I yeah, and I also think yeah. millennials, who I've interviewed several people in that demographic, who are not tied to their homes. I've interviewed people from every generation, and I'm hearing more of a clinging to the home from my mom's generation. She's 88, as I mentioned. And as opposed to, to my generation, I'm 57. I'm single. I don't have kids. And I'm in a home. I'd like to stay here, but I don't need to. And from the millennials I've interviewed, many of them have said, I don't, I don't really care about my home. You know, it's not, not a big deal to me. So it'll be really interesting to see how each generation deals with it individually, and what is there for them, if anything. 
that's a great way to look at it because I think things will change. And also, you know, we're, we are living older. I mean, that's the beauty of like how I started, you know, speaking to you about my first film, which was about living vibrantly. I mean, that's the great news. We're living a really, really long time. Right. And that's something to be celebrated. But you're not going to move. You might sail through your 70s like my mom did or even sail, sail through your 80s. You know, like there are people that are runners and they're traveling and stuff. But somewhere in your 90s, you're going to begin to decline, but there's still life, you know, there's still moments that can be really had. My children are very, very close to my mother, Mm. and they value every visit she makes, you know, and they are aware, they'll always say now, oh, Nana, she's doing really well now, Mom, she's really with it, she's really in a good phase, and because she wasn't doing as well before she got this little bit of care, you know, so it's pervasive, and it's taken a little bit of the responsibility away from us, too, right. in ways that I'm very thankful for. Have you screened this film for any public officials, any elected officials or policymakers? That's interesting. I mean, we have, that is one goal, is to take it to Capitol Hill. You know, we probably will do that with our PBS broadcast. So that is, you know, definitely something. But, you know, one of the things about this is that, I mean, some films, you know, it's right. clearer that there's like a bill about to be passed or uh-huh, something. And then uh-huh, you often, uh-huh. I mean, I think that these things are more at the state level at this point. But mm-hmm. yes, that is definitely goal. Um, we also are really trying to get ARP that has been thinking very much about family caregiving, mm-hmm. which is obviously really, really important. Um, but they're just on the cusp of really kind of not separating those two out because what you really want is some family care, but also like, you, you know, families can't do it by themselves. So really seeing that, that people, it's an extension of the family often to have paid care, mm-hmm. um, and families are not doing it on their own. So that's something that we're really excited about. Mm-hmm. And just trying to get it, yeah, to public officials, to churches, to schools, to young people, so they can start to think about these issues early on. I'm, I'm excited to hear that, you know, when, when you talk about millennials, I think that is really interesting. And a lot of millennials also have the experience of having grandparents that have lived a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. So they, they, you know, we might think, oh, they're young, they don't key into this issue, but I think that they do. Oh, yeah, they do, because they're seeing lots of generations ahead of them, whereas we only saw our grandparents for a brief period of time, maybe, before they died. Exactly. So. I, and that's really true. Mm. That's really true. Well, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, offer any last thoughts before we go. Anything you'd like to leave with the listeners? Wow, no, you're such an amazing interviewer. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah, I just am so glad to, you know, to be speaking, you know, with you and someone else who's thinking about these issues. The thing is that there really is an opportunity for something to be learned a lot from elder people. I mean, I think they have so much wisdom and so much experience and to have people at home near us in our communities is really something that I think we want. You know, I, I think intergenerational communities are really great, but you can't expect young people to or families to be able to do all the work alone. I just think it would be sad to think that people won't be in their homes and they'd be forced into institutions. And we wouldn't have the pleasure of having those intergenerational experiences. So I think it's really a gift to all of us and also to embrace so we can go, oh, wow, there's something to be had at every stage of life. Look, I think there's something very reassuring about that for all of us to not look at our futures only with dread and say, wow, there's, there's a possibility for some wonderful experiences at the end. And even if I need a little bit of help, it's going to be there for me, and I'm going to be resilient and be flexible and keep 
showing up and enjoying life. I find that reassuring, and I think it would sort of send a different message out to all of us about what life is. Well, as someone who has caregivers in her life and who has seen how my mother has benefited from having them, I want to thank you for making this film and for portraying these workers with such dignity because I don't think we see this portrayal often enough. And so I, I really salute you. Thank you for making this thank film. Thank you. Thank you so much for the interview and for all your thoughtful questions. Deirdre Fischel, she's an associate professor at the City College of New York, where she's also director of the BFA in Film and Video Program, and, of course, Deirdre is also a filmmaker. We've been talking about her new documentary film called Care. It's produced by Tony Hariza and directed by Deirdre Fischel. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to the film's website, where you can watch the trailer, learn more about how to host a screening of the film in your community, or take action in other ways to improve America's care system. Deirdre Fischel, thank you so much for being on the show and for your incredibly powerful, moving film called Care. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends. And if you're so inclined, go to agewise.com and subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. <laughs>